Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But... We're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Ooh, it's dark. Why don't you touch my moist skin and get lost in my beard, Maria Lewis, because this is the bonus show of It Came From The Deep, chapter six, the horniest chapter of all time. I actually listened to the audiobook version after reading it in the car. <laughs> and when I was listening to it along, I felt like I was doing something salacious and dirty because it was all touching and profile and butt colors and scales and deeply arousing chapter. It's really good to be back talking to you again on the show. Wow, what an opening. Every week, such a ride. <laughs> this week, I truly wasn't expecting that we were going to start there. But yeah, it is a pretty horny chapter for sure. That's Love great. It. That's a great point. I totally forgot. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, from this point onwards, the horn is really like ever present. It's just that invisible character just like there with a rage and white on. So I forgot that this is like the initiation of it all. But mm. yeah, we're in it, baby. We're going balls deep. It Let's came go. from the balls. It's just like it's just like that moment in the shape of water, like when you're in the bathroom and you're like, "Oh, this isn't go- oh shit, it is absolutely going there." And you're like, "I'm all about it. I'm all for it. Let's go. Let's go." Yeah. That movie had me from well, I mean, had me from Del Toro, but it had me when she sets the little egg beater to beat her beater every morning. <laughs> I was like, that is actually something, you know, you just don't get to see female masturbation normalized in a way like that and a classy fucking movie and it just i really fucking appreciated that i was like del toro's got some women in his life and it just tells it shines through in all of his work in my honest opinion so we're here we've we've ditched cabby it's all kaya going for a night swim yeah um, she takes the leap of faith she has that faith that she has to take the plunge believing that she was saved you know that she was saved not spared and so by the end of chapter five she's she's taken that risk and chapter six is the payoff she's not crazy guys spoilers she's, she's, she's not, not crazy it is a merman or an aquatic humanoid as his father called him yeah aquatic humanoid yep uh aquatic humanoid is a phrase that pops up a lot more in the series going forward in the other books i was trying to think of like a term, I made that term up. I'm sure it, maybe it's been used somewhere else, but when I was doing a lot of the marine biology research and talking to different experts about that kind of stuff, I was trying to formulate a sciencey phrase that could work. It's like, you know, like a xenomorph or like mm. a, a, a fantastical creature explained through like a realistic term, you know? My, my, fa- that- my, fa- my favorite one ever in science fiction, Emmy Mellit Balioloi. What does that mean? <laughs> Liquid metal. You know, like, you know, it's the fucking coolest thing in the world. That is so cool. You know what the worst one is? <laughs> unobtainium. <laughs> Both Jimmy Cameron special. Oh, so unobtainium is like wild. Just be like, you'll never get this metalitis or something, you know? Anyway, uh, so aquatic humanoid was something that I settled on quite early because, I, again, it was that trying to taper down some of the 
fantastical elements. Like he is a merman for all intents and purposes. And that is discussed frequently going forward, but it's also like leaning hard into sort of the sci-fi route of it all. Um, the sci-fi-ness of it all. How would a scientist approach a merman? Like this is a mythological creature in like a textbook definition, if you were viewing it that way, for sure. But a scientist is like, this isn't myth. This is a realistic thing that is in front of me. Therefore, how do I categorize it? How do I summarize it? How do I, you know, quantify this entity? Like it's not a myth, it's real. Therefore, you know, science, 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 some other stuff, science. (laughs) Can I also say one thing I've appreciated about Amos this time around, which is it's, it's such a relatable thing that I think you and I have, which is, it's him being let loose in Lake Palats is like us after a big shop where you get all the snacks and he just eats nearly all the fish in the whole pond and you just and you just eat all the snacks and then like two days later you hate yourself for those first few days but you love it you love it and then you're like there's no fucking snacks in this house what happened to all the snacks and it's like we're having two, all the snacks <laughs> two days ago we sat on the lounge and watched four movies and ate eight bags of lollies and three bags of chips and that's exactly <laughs> what Amos was like me I was like I kind of laughed I'm like it is the reaction of like I, I, I t- like that sort of like teen quality or juvenile or whatever you want to call it of like, he's finally being released. He's usually, you know, in these like small States and like not being allowed to do something. And then he goes in out a and controlled it- environment where yeah. he doesn't have to worry about yes. impulse control. And now suddenly he does, <laughs> you know, what's so funny is it's like, I just, as you were describing that, I was having such a visceral flashback to like you and I just like slamming into the snacks. You oh would always God. get them. And then I would be like, great choice and enable. And we were much, and then Sam would come in and be like, if you eat all those now, there'll be no snacks left. And we were like, uh. And then two days later, you just hear Blake from the kitchen, where are the snacks? It's like, mm. I may as well be rolling and writhing on the floor, kicking and screaming. Where are A hundred percent. But like, you know, that term aquatic humanoid, this is the first instance of it like the first time that we use that term Mm. and it's so funny the things that connect with people because I remember the first time it came from the deep maybe it might have been the first or the second time um that it had been out as a physical book and I had it with me physically at a supernova or a comic con I can't remember which one it was and um Somebody had cross-stitched me a little, uh, and I'll, I'll share a picture of this in the weekly Twitter thread that I do for these bonus apps, but someone had cross-stitched me a little uh, like mantra plaque that said aquatic humanoids deserve rights too, <laughs> 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 which is the now what you sign off with. Like that's the little sign off for the show, but yes. that literally came from somebody thinking he 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 and cross-stitching me that. And I'm like, oh, that's so cute. That's such a specific in-joke, but I really, really love it. And I mean, we're getting to see this is all, this chapter is about payoff in so many ways, you know, Mm -hmm. there's your horn, but we're getting the payoff of the Professor Waltman setup. You know, there was all this allusion to him being up to some in quote unquote marine science shit in his house and a tank that's too big and like lots of stuff that was like, okay, this is a thread we're going to need to pull on later. And that thread is well and truly being pulled here. But it's also, to touch on the name for a second, you know, chapter five up until this point, we don't know that something's down there. And then chapter six, not only do we know 
that something's down there, but we get a name. And the name is significant for lots of different reasons. I mean, um, I can't remember if it pops up in the very next chapter a wee bit later, but Professor Waldman is Jewish and Amos, he gives Amos his name. He gives him a name that he chooses because until they can, you know, set up a form of communication, it's basically like, I'm going to pick a name and you'll be my fish son, question mark. <laughs> but the name he chooses means born by God. Um, and, you know, Amos was an eighth century prophet. And so I was, I literally had that in my notes was the name significant for any particular reason. And yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't make the connection of the Jewish uh, uh, scientists at the beginning, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, it's just meant to tie into the fact that Professor Waldman considers him a miracle. You know, this might be a man who's all about science and facts and quantifying things in a logical manner, but discovery in many ways is miraculous, especially if that thing is the discovery of something that is mythological for all intents and purposes so sorry to preempt your question but yeah the name is significant no 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 it's 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 perfectly fine i i think um you do a great we've we've like jump right into the mythos and the payoff and things like that but there's also some really good tangible touches that you put on here which is the um midnight swims they're so exhilarating and they're so fun and you are usually so full of adrenaline that you are having a great time until you are immediately freezing your ass off. Your teeth are chattering and you're like, this is the worst idea in the whole world. It goes from fun to freezing in like 2.5. 2.5 seconds. Like, like if you're fun, you've had, you know, ill-advised, but if you've ever been that person that maybe has had one or two drinks at like a house party and you go for a little swim in the pool or whatever late at night, that's I'm always that person. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not, not the, I'm always the one who's like, oh, a body of water. I guess I must need to physically be in it. That's my compulsion. Um, and so it's that that's all very well set up. And then we obviously get to, you know, what is all uh, it's, I think this is a really patient chapter and you do it very well visually, um, even though it's in the written word, because you're like, in this moment, you do a bit of a, like a Bong Joon-ho's the host kind of deal, which is like the whole trick of a lot of things is, that you like show sliver by sliver by sliver and we'd only get like part by part ahead and eyes a blah, mm. a flashback to somewhere else. And right here, you're like, no, here's the thing. Here he is. And we like, literally, we look him up and down. We spend a chunk of time with him. Mm. We kind of like in the way that she's getting to know him and him explaining stuff, get all the answers to all the questions. And it's like, all right, now they ha- we can move on. And I think that that's kind of, that's typical of your work in this genre is like, you know, you have these characters, you have fun with them, you want to play with them, but you also want to play with them in the world. You don't just want to play with them in a vacuum. And so it's kind of cool here that like they're, they're kind of getting a, doing like a whole book's worth of reveal about the character and the species in one chapter so that we can move on. Cause there's more, there's bigger things happening. hundred percent. The big questions for her, right. Again, like this is all about stages, right? Kaya's levels of problems. We talked about this back in chapter four her level of problem or what she thinks her problems are are like dealing with the fact that a bunch of people think she, you know, it's her fault. Somebody died and her boyfriend's ex-boyfriend's popping up in her life. And her dad's always trying to find excuses to not be there. Yeah. They are significant problems <laughs> for a certain <laughs> level of stakes. And then it goes to the it's next all level relative. of stakes. It's all relative. It's like, Oh my God. Okay. That seems like such a small problem comparatively. And then, we're at that middle point now, and that is about to take another jump in another few chapters, right? So her big questions right now is what is he and where did he come from? 
And those are things that we can answer directly because the groundwork has been laid early on with the Professor Wolven prologue, but also the fact that she believed something was in there. This isn't coming out of the blue. Um, it's it's something that was, there was something there. It was implied that it was there, not just from the title and not just from the synopsis of the book, but from the things that she's experienced. And this was the turning point. It's either a psychological thriller or it's a sci-fi one. <laughs> and, you know, spoilers, obviously it's a sci-fi one because Amos is real. But also the just to touch on his name and playing on the world, like I talked about the significance of, you know, Professor Waldman's Jewish heritage and him believing that Amos is a miracle, a scientific miracle, but a miracle nonetheless. But for people who are familiar with the series, which includes Who's Afraid, Who's Afraid 2, Which You Caught a Death, Wailing Woman, Who's Still Afraid, Rose Daughter will be next. And then the final book in this series is yet untitled. Let's hypothetically say it's Maz Venger's Essential, <laughs> which would be rad. <laughs> it would be rad. But there is another Amos in this book series. Um, he's somebody who we never meet living. He's always dead. He's dead by the events of Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid Too. And his name is Amos. And he is a, a werewolf who takes his own life. And his suicide ends up being this sort of cataclysmic event for two key characters who circulate throughout the series. Lorcan and Heath, who are both immortal warriors within the Praetorian Guard. And because we never meet this character, Amos, or this werewolf, Amos, he's just somebody who's like, you know, mentioned once or twice, but his death is this kind of inciting incident for Lorcan leaving the Praetorian Guard and joining the custodians or like the psychological, you know, supernatural counselors, if you will. And also the inciting incident that drives this wedge between Heath and Lorcan's friendship, which becomes really pivotal. And Amos's death in Texas is this thing that in a way kind of kickstarts the events of Who's Afraid. And we sort of see a clip of that, a clip, weird, weird to say that isn't it but I'm seeing it visually so we see a snippet of that scene in The Witch Who Courted Death which chronologically is the fourth book of mine but takes place before the events of Who's Afraid and then you know Lorcan mentions about how significant that event was to him and Who's Afraid and we see the different ways two very different men handle a very traumatic event for anybody but traumatic specifically in the context of people who can like fucking come on baby we gonna live forever you know what I mean <laughs> immortal soldiers and like people whose stakes are very different to the rest of the world so the name Amos is like significant because the ripples of that person help create the world and the story and the characters and then this Amos obviously a completely different person completely different entity it was civil way to signify the importance because the dead Amos was important, but the living one is also crucially important. The dead Amos is kind of like what influenced the past and the living Amos becomes a big part of what influenced the future going forward in particular with the Rose daughter. Just going to throw out um, for the Maz Vengers assemble, just, I think you should just call it, broad breakers like like as in, instead of ball breakers but like they're all blousy broads like your broads assembled broad breakers but anyway we can we can workshop that when later. you when you said broad breakers for whatever reason 
I heard it as like the Transformers theme. Broadbreakers, monsters <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you heard it as Spring Breakers and uh, you were going to be really upset with me. But Spring that's... Break. Fucking hate that movie. So overrated. <laughs> Everyone needs to take a good hard look at themselves. <laughs> oh, very fun. Um, but I did like uh, The Beach Bum. That is a lot of fun, that movie. If you've never seen it, it's really fun. No, good, thanks, but yeah, good, good digression. Thematically um, on the point though, beach bum, beach yeah. world, beach culture, tick, tick, tick. Yeah. All that stuff. Um, the... Won't be recommending that in the Twitter thread, but anyway, <laughs> I will. Um, I, I would just, I would just say though, it's, um, you know, it's interesting that you, we had a great discussion in one of the earlier um, bonus episodes about the significance of a name and so why I was really relishing your explanation there is because you are so fastidious about like not repeating yourself and finding good names. And, you know, it's a cafe, it's a hairdresser, it's a, a person serving you at a Woolworths checkout. You know, you, you kind of look down and you're like, oh, like, that's a good, oh, look at that name tag. Oh, I haven't heard that name before. That's a nice name. Um, and you sort of put that away in your little notebook. But it's just interesting that you were kind of mapping this out because for the longest time, or at least I guess how this novel came about, this was not directly connected to your Maz universe, so to speak. This was like the different thing. And then what I loved about it immediately was when it became pretty apparent by basically this chapter that we're speaking that like, oh no, this is going to, this is the same world. This feels like the same world and it's not definitely not the same place, maybe not in the same time period, but it feels like this is another window into this area, but uh, taking a slightly smaller scale, a slightly more personal tone and, and taking a, a, a really, you know, taking a nice little patch of the Gold Coast as a, as, as a, as a place for you to, to play in that doesn't have international consequences as a lot of the other books do aspirational worlds, things like a Star Wars, like a Lord of the Rings, even things like an underworld or Resident Evil, places where you can have a big epic fate of the world type event and plotline and scenario, but the world's created and the world building created is dense enough that you can have side stories happening and participating all along the journey on different levels with different scales and stakes. Harry Potter is like that too, right? And it came from the deep was supposed to be a little bit of a Trojan horse in that way, because it was supposed to be a wonderful entry point for people who had never read any of my work before and felt like they didn't need to do homework to enter because it was a self-contained story. But from day one, if you had read any of my previous books, People and I never said either way. I never was like this is or an is isn't. I was like, here's a little story I wrote. You enjoy. Um, but for people who are familiar with the world and familiar with who's afraid and who's afraid to, they saw the clues immediately in the language and the setting and some of the name choices. Nobody made the Amos connection um, because it's really not overt at all. It's not intended to be overt. It's more just something for me. I am fastidious. I love that word. And I love the way you said it. I was like, oh yeah, great, great verbology there. Um, in making sure, or at least attempting to make sure that I don't repeat myself with names and that names are chosen for specific reasons and from specific places. And far as I'm aware, now this might be bullshit. So readers like pluck it out, but fuck me dead. There's like, you know, a good solid, like nearly a million words in this series. <laughs> so I'm fucked if I know, but I feel like 
Amos is the only name that has been repeated, um, as in two characters with the same name and characters that of note, I should say, rather than like a, you know, a fucking Rebecca at a shop or something like that. So the repetition of the name is significant and it's supposed to be significant for the reasons I outlined um, previously, but it came from the deep being this thing that can simultaneously stand on its own and be part of the larger world was really important to me, but it's success when it had been, as we talked about in depth in the prologue episode to this whole podcast, its success was not supposed to be a sure thing and was in fact, you know, was told by many people, merman stuff doesn't sell, you know, any aquatic humanoid shit doesn't sell. And so places like the story, but didn't pick it up because of those stats and those reasons. And then it being successful ended up reshaping the world because then the next thing that my publishers wanted from me was, hey, when you pitched us this other story that was a separate pivot and adventure within the universe with a bisexual amputee witch who, you know, um, bisexual amputee medium, sorry, who could control the dead, we kind of thought that was a little too wacky and we couldn't see a world for it. But because it came from the deep worked and because it found an audience, suddenly that was a possibility again. And obviously, aesthetically, it came from the deep open doors in terms of how the Wailing Woman's cover would look and how the aesthetic of the rest of the series would look going forward from a publishing point of view that I don't necessarily have control over. Most book covers, you get given options and you choose the one you hate least. And <laughs> that pivot to like how things would look as a set. All, there was a lot of things in this series that basically I got to do because it came from the deep was successful. And I'm so grateful for that because sometimes it's not enough to tell people that something is going to work. You have to show them. I, I think you've just... I, I want to reinforce your point, but just use language that you're much more familiar with, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer language to say, it came from the deep is your Zeppo, baby. You know, we're in the, we're in the, bit. Oh, it's, it's a bottle lip. It's, it's just a bottle lip. It's just right there. It's, honestly, one of my most hated episodes of Buffy really wish you'd gone with like a, a wish. I oh, love the wish. So, wish. The wish is, is a great good. Ep. Look, I'm going to say this because I genuinely love the, the, the Zeppo ep, ep in that, there is a cataclysmic world thing going on, but right in the POV of the main character, mm. which is the A plot of the episode, it's just one person's little thing. It's their one little thing that they're going to conquer. And I think that at the, at people would say, why is this significant? And why is this going to have ramifications later? It's like, no, this is really important because it's going to, it's still going to engage with the things that are happening in the background, even if it's just causally and casually, but, it's going to focus really laser focus on, on what this, you know, what this story has to do. So yeah, yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see how people respond in the perspective that they have to this book going forward, because it has been a lot of like more side adventures up until um, the Wailing Woman. And by the end of the Wailing Woman, things are really starting to connect and line up and characters that maybe popped up in other books as supporting characters or names or references or whatever. The subtext is rapidly becoming text and that becomes super present with both Who's Still Afraid, but also with the Rose Daughter in particular. It's the amalgamation of these books and these characters and these timelines and these worlds and these side adventures. And I'm hoping that feels like it pays off to people. I'm here, like, you know, 
that that's the aim. You can only attempt and hope that it connects uh, with people in a certain degree. I have had some responses from who's still afraid where people feel like it has and hopefully that like progression feels organic and authentic through the Rose Daughter and through Maz Ventures Assemble. So I guess only time will tell. Just throwing another like, title out there, Squad Ghouls. Squad Squad Ghouls. Oh, that would be dope. Somebody, <laughs> I feel like the um, Monster High Dolls must have done an animated series or something that's called that Squad Ghouls. But um, it's all about like hopefully doing as much groundwork as possible and now we're at the point where we can attempt payoff in one way or the other. Yeah, it is a series. Sorry, squad girls. Um, uh, <laughs> squad uh, girls. So this is a very touchy feely episode. Um, there's lots of yes. Uh, ver- let's get very, into biology, baby. Let's get in. Let's get into biology. Uh, from up top, besides some jagged teeth, mm, serrated uh, teeth. Yeah. Serrated, serrated. You know, you know, serrated teeth. Um, luscious beard. Bodied mm. up Harrison Ford mm. in What Lies Beneath style, all the way down to kind of uh, the 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 famous V on uh, usually mm. attractive football players, aka Brad Pitt sort of circuit Fight Club era, to the V, little bit of buns at the top, and then it's man dolphin but with scales. Is that kind <laughs> of like is that is that that's what part of the reason I read and then listened to the audiobook chapter like our listeners would if they're following along with the show is because I was like I wanted to he- I want to hear someone else say it so I can be listening to it as I'm driving along and like imagining with someone else yeah. with Sophie's yeah. voice sort of telling me. Yeah, when you said man dolphin again I hear things in my head in like a perfectly sane way. And I heard Mandingo, but Mandolphin. <laughs> so, yes, the serrated teeth is particularly disconcerting from a human perspective if you are viewing someone with serrated teeth. But the reality is human teeth are designed for human food and aquatic humanoids need teeth that can tear through fish, tear through bone, tear through all kinds of um, produce and matter that needs to be consumed in the environment in which they consume it. So serrated teeth were a must because it's just impractical for them to have human teeth. They wouldn't be able to eat, you know, their teeth would be fucking snapping off and they'd just be like gumming a fish. It would be bad. The other thing with the beard as well is like that controlled environment stuff that we mentioned earlier about him having no impulse control because he's never just had the opportunity <laughs> to like om nom nom before it's the same sort of thing. If you grow up in a very controlled environment, you know, his father's teaching him how to shave and how to groom. And like, he gets to choose how he wants to have his facial hair. And then suddenly he's an environment where he doesn't have access to the person who taught him how to do that, let alone any of the implements. So this idea of like a mermaid, like a lot of times the pop culture perception of mermaids is like, these very uh, like twink aesthetic, like chiseled jawbone kind of vibe. (laughs) where they come out of the water and they have these soft, clean jawlines. And I'm like, who's asking the question about how mermen shape? Like, are we getting a shell and just like sliding that baby along the jawline or is somebody else doing it for them? Or like, do they just not have facial hair? In which case, like, why would they have any hair? So dude, these are all the things <laughs> that I get obsessed about, like the micro of as, it all. As, as you're saying it, I'm thinking of that scene in Ace Ventura when he's like, to train a dolphin, you must sink like a dolphin. You must get inside the dolphin's head and communicate. Like, I'm just like thinking yep. To write the man dolphin, you got to get in the head of the man dolphin. <laughs> but that was the thing. I was like, when 
she meets him, he has been in that lake for a while without any of that stuff. So I wanted him to have growth, hair growth, like to him to look a little bit wild because he has been in, you know, a wild situation. And there's a an interpretation of the character at this specific moment that I'll link to in the Twitter thread that is by um, our dear mate, Boss Logic, who did his, you know, I just kind of like gave him the story and I was like, choose your own adventure type vibe. And the part that he chose to interpret was this chapter where Amos emerges from the water bearded and for all intents and purposes, quite scary with the serrated teeth and the skin that is not human color or touch or tone. so I'll, I'll link to that, but his interpretation of that was very specific and not indicative of who Amos is inside, but that's the version of him that Kaya probably saw first up. So with dolphins having that specific biological makeup, there's a reason for it. And when, you know, I've been talking it through with der- various people and experts on this, a human version of that an aquatic humanoid version of that would need to have a vertebrae that is like I like reinforced steel in a way like a little bit of a like you know adamantium adamantium claws type yeah. vibe yeah. <laughs> but for vertebrae if you were going to have something that could be that strong and that fast and for the purposes of this book that permanent you know like selkie mythology aquatic humanoid mythology aquatic humanoid is what he is and the definition of what he is in this book right the mythological aspects and the supernatural aspects don't really come into it they're alluded to it and there's that possibility but it's not something that comes into it yet and because amos the beauty of him being in this lake and being raised by somebody who's a human is that he doesn't know that stuff either So he will learn it and gets to learn it at the same time as the audience does. So the mythological aspects of, you know, merman and mermaids and selkies and sirens and all that different sort of, you know, that type of aquatic entity. Yeah, she's not getting getting him fresh out of like a tribe of mermen. Like she's not, she's not, she hasn't fallen off a ship like, like a, a, I feel like, what is almost like an archetypal merman story where someone, you know, falls off into the water in the deep ocean. There's like yes. a society and they want to ingratiate them. It's like reverse little mermaid shit. Like we don't, totally. that's not what you're doing. You're doing like this. This is a specimen ultimately that is like got sentience in, in many ways. And, and mm-hmm. Kaya is learning about it at the same time, which is cool because it, you never get made to feel stupid or like, you're like, Oh shit. Did I jump into the third book in this thing? Like, this is what I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm reading straight from the, Exactly. I want it to be grounded and accessible. But the reason I flagged the supernatural stuff is the comment, the one of the big commonalities between lots of different cultures, myths and creation myths that surround sirens and selkies and mermaids and mermaid is an ability to shape shift. And like the biological specifics of that is, you know, something for another time, another place, whatever. But that is something that is not a consideration right now. The focus is the reality of this person in like a, an aquarium, almost like a, the book is the aquarium and we're viewing him through that. But the other thing with the scales and the texture of the skin and the gills and like the, this, the dry skin not being really a thing, like he's somebody who is like 
lubricated and moist at all times. Oh yeah, sex words, blah blah blah, la la la. But like that's that's facts. Like how many sea creatures have dry skin? Like the dead ones? Cool. This guy needs to be alive. Never, um, no no fish has ever complained of being ashy. <laughs> Truly. So all of that kind of stuff is based on the actual conditions and distinctly non-human traits that are needed to survive in an aquatic environment and were informed by conversations that I had with scientists and marine biologists um, and also from you know research that I had with people who were like specifically dolphin experts so I'm like okay so I'm making a man dolphin <laughs> how do I make that not dumb <laughs> there's there's also a great image that i can't shake which is like is amos fighting the birds for food like 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 on purpose like sort of beaching himself on the wall and like fighting a seagull like i know that it's not written or explicit (laughs) but i just got this image of him like like just like getting up there like yeeting himself he's yeeting himself out of the water like you see when like a like you see like um when like a killer whale eats a walrus on the shore you know what i mean like it just goes yum and like they're trying to move out of the way or a penguin and i just imagine him sort of doing the same thing and uh it was giving me a great deal of amusement imagining it i love that i love that those are the things like you know you want people to imagine their own (laughs) choose your own adventure because i'm sure like he probably for for realsies like definitely would have had to have a crack at a few birds real quick seagulls are so so stupid so stupid but the thing is like once birds know then um they change and adjust their behavior so he probably got to have some like KFC for a good few weeks there and then the birds became about <laughs> as scarce as the fish and he's like fuck I hope I better like save someone from you know a terrible physical assault so they can feed me some salmon <laughs> and some rocks for a bit <laughs> and, and and like I may or may not have eaten two South Africans we'll see we haven't had that we'll see. Well, no. so he says oh okay yeah cool nah we're good save that for another chapter Yep. save that for another chat i'm like you know the story better than anyone i was like oh my god no but that's like no you're an idiot <laughs> <laughs> we have sometimes bounced. i forget how these things work <laughs> <laughs> we have bounced around to a few different episodes but um uh, i think this whole it's um the tactile experience with the monster is a very cool thing was this something knowing that you're a monster fan, whether it's movies and books and comic books for such a long time, was this something that you were yearning for? Because I was really racking my brain for like a, like almost like petting zoo interaction with a monster that isn't rude. And he seems to just be totally comfortable with Kyra. And I didn't think it was like perverted or grotesque, but it was like this funny thing of like, I just need to touch you to, sh- to make sure that you're real so that I know that I'm not dreaming is, is kind yes. of the whole, the, the whole inroads of the dialogue and, and the sort of um, the examination, if you like, of, of what Amos is and how he works and how his body works and all those sorts of things. But I just wondered, like, was this something you were craving to put into one of your books because you are such a monster fan and that tactile thing is really important to you in sort of bringing a character to life? Yeah, and you just touched on it really beautifully there of like that thing of her seeing him visually and being like, oh, am I dreaming? But also the touch is practical for Kaya in terms of am I having a post-traumatic snap? You know what I mean? Like that something physically being real, 
but also to her fingertips important but also physically being real to the world around her the ripples the scents the smells like all that kind of stuff the sounds that's really key for her proving that he actually exists now in terms of the monster movie like introductionary tactile bit of it all great pull you know me so well because there's a bit in the original Frankenstein where um, Frankenstein's monster sees like a like a, a flower sort of floating on the water and he thinks it's so beautiful and tries to recreate that with like a little girl who he's kind of befriended on the shore. And what ends up happening is their sort of like first tactile introduction results in her death. He accidentally drowns her like, whoops, um, you know, no better <laughs> do better for next time. <laughs> oh, my and bad. So, yeah, these, these encounters often go badly first up. Um, so I wanted to lay a potential path for there being growth in this relationship. And I mean, from like a, a physical point of view in terms of like, oh my God, there's a merman, but then like, he looks this way and that way, but what does that mean? There's a thing that Kaya sort of just mentions about his skin being different yes, and the feel of it, but also the look of it and that coming into play later um, and much, much later in the book and that being, you know, sort of a key to unlocking aspects of who Amos is and where he comes from and what that means. So I wanted to have that experience be a really physical one because I just don't believe that she would buy it without that. Yeah. She couldn't touch the thing and really prove to herself that it's real. I don't know if she would believe that it's real. And also like, wouldn't you, you know, like you think you see something weird and then you find a way to explain it to yourself later, or you find some way to sort of like, you know, Oh, well maybe it was that. And if I saw it in this light and blah, blah, blah. And you know, your whole exorcist it, you know, to yourself, or maybe like the, the TV series evil, which I think is, does a really good example of this, where it's basically debunking Satan. It's like the good wife, but Satan for the entire first season. And it's, it's that idea of like trying to rationalize something to her and there's nothing to be rationalized here. So she needs to touch and like get amongst it. Well, sometimes the point of the monster movie is to have that wrestle. Like the entire point is, is this thing real or is it not? And is my life in danger or is it not? And, you know, mm. I think you nailed it with the exorcist. as like, is this chick actually possessed or does she have ADHD? And then once you're crawling yes. on the roof and vomiting into circles <laughs> um, and and saying your mother sucks cocks in hell, like it's once pretty much. Once you get a hold of that crucifix, it's going <laughs> anywhere near your genitals. It's like all over Red River. It's all over Red River. But this story is not, I think that what you're saying in this chapter, which I think is good, is we are not to be preoccupied with the simply the how of this thing, whether or not it exists, like that could occupy the whole rest of your story. Does it exist more investigation, but that's not what this story is. The story is bigger than this moment. And I think on this moment, it's like going, no, we're just going to shed all that bullshit. We're going to get to him. He talks, he's not quite a humanoid. He's not part of this thing. He needs to learn about himself. She can help him. She's not coming insane. It's real. Yeah, we're at the halfway point now almost. And it's like, okay, you can maintain a mystery for so long, but I don't know if the entire book can be that. You know, I don't know that central, like, is there a merman or is there not, is enough to sustain an entire story. Oh, I, I think I think it can, but I just think I like, that's your style is not, you're not preoccupied with the is it or isn't it 
thing. Like that's like a short film. This is a novel that's connecting to the Maz cinematic universe, so to speak, or the Maz badass bitch um, uh, supernatural universe and um, another potential title. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I think you're not, getting it out of the way is just like part of the style for me. It's like, you know, this, what you do at the beginning, it's like a procedural murder investigation mystery. Um, and, and then it's like, you know, got all this really serious stuff like, you know, PTSD snaps and assaults and all this other stuff. And then it's like, fuck merman. And now it's like, yeah, actual merman. Now like deal with everything that you've already known about this book. And let's let's project ourselves further, further and farther into the future as we go along. Yeah, that's a trait of my storytelling. I didn't immediately identify, but as you're like saying that, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because I'm thinking of all my books where something fucked happens early and we just need to like progress. Like the opening chapter of The Wailing Woman is the main character, Sadie, doing a banshee whale, like this thing Mm -hmm. that's not supposed to exist. And it's like, there's all this built and then her throat slit. (laughs) Yeah. Unbanshied. Get out of the way. Banshees can wail. There's banshees in the world, world, and you know we're just going to slit the throat of a nine-year-old. On to the action, like Witcher quoted death and massacre in the opening chapters, and like yeah, all right, let's move on to battling giant spider people. Like there's things to do here, but you know to do, take a very like Aaron Sorkin West Wingy mantra of it all. What's next? So there's a merman. You're not crazy. What's next? How did yes. he get here? What is he? And like, how do your paths intertangle? You know, there's a for real a world where like Kaya leaves like Palazzo never goes back and he's just in there doing what forever? Like there are all these like little potential. <laughs> Until he yeets himself out of there and eats her on the side of the shore without talking to her. Eats a child, <laughs> just takes, a, takes out an annoying brat, you know, or something. And it's just like, okay, bye. Um, but there's all these like possible diversions uh of where the story could go and how it could go and this is like okay so this is here we are so what is the next path like what happens next the big question has been answered midway through the book so like let's fucking get on with it it came from the deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author maria lewis read by sophie parr and produced by adam boys at thaumaturgy post-production services New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermates.